Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic adult and child psychiatrist. This episode is part three of a three-part series on mold toxicity. The first episode focused on how mold toxins get into the body and what symptoms they can cause. The second episode was on diagnosis and treatment, specifically in the body. An essential part of treatment, however, is addressing the exposures in our various environments. In this episode, I'll talk about how we can test and address mold in our environment. Most of the treatment interventions in the last episode would not be fully effective if someone is still living in mold. I wish there was a gold standard when it comes to mold testing. There is not. Different tests work better for different situations, and the best is often to use a combination of testing. When I'm working with someone and we find that they have mold toxicity in their body, it's not a given that toxicity is from their current environment. It could be from a previous environment and even be from childhood. I would say for many people it's likely an accumulation of exposures. But nonetheless, testing of the home would still be recommended to assure that they are not getting exposure. Because once someone is found to have mold toxicity, it's then known that they are someone who is susceptible. So the first question to ask becomes, do you know you have a mold issue in your home? If yes, if you see mold growth, or if you know there has been unaddressed water damage, for example, stains on the ceiling or seeing mold growth on windows, or buckling of hardwood floors, or water damage from a leak under a sink, then testing is not necessarily required, and you should consider involving a mold inspector who can help guide a remediation process. If you don't know of any water damage and there's no evidence of mold, then there are things you can do on your own to evaluate to the best that you can. The least expensive approach is ordering, and I would recommend and have more experience with a company called Immunolytics, and basically they'll send a kit that has Petri dishes with a substance that will grow mold if present, and there's nice instructions on their website to tell you how to do this testing, but Essentially, you're putting them in various rooms. The ones that end up growing out mold, you would send to the lab, and they would send you a report telling you what was on the various plates. Because you would label these plates, this approach can help localize a problem. If you find high growth, then you could have an inspector come in and help find the source. Different molds behave differently and grow in different places. Inspectors can use equipment to identify sources of moisture, for example, behind walls or in flooring. Another approach when you don't know if there is an active problem is to use ERMI testing. And the company that I've typically used for this has been Mycometrics. You will be sent something akin to a Swiffer cloth, and you use this to collect dust samples. Mold spores, when they settle from the air, are essentially in the dust. Ideally, you are using a different cloth for different floors in your house. Still, this doesn't help you localize the problem to a specific room because on one sample, you will have dust samples 
from various rooms unless you order one for each room. And this testing is more expensive than the prior testing I was talking about. A cheaper version of this is what's called HertzMe testing, H-E-R-T-S-M-I, which looks at five of the most common water damage molds. And if you do order this test and get a report, you can always upgrade using that same sample to the more detailed ERMI test, and that's E-R-M-I. And when you get the report for this test, basically there's two columns. One is a column with water damage molds, and the other column is molds that relate to outdoors. And they're giving counts of the number of spores on the cloth that you send in of these various species. And from these two columns, a score is generated that essentially is the difference between the two columns. The score is designed to help those who are especially sensitive know if they are in an environment with high exposure. In some regards, this has been considered the best testing, especially for those who are sensitive to mold. However, with increased awareness about mold toxicity and the evolving understanding in the environmental community, there is an evolution in testing, so this will likely keep changing over time. A third type of testing that is fairly new, to illustrate my point, is the EMA testing, which is E-M-M-A. This is done by Real-Time Lab, and this can be especially good to identify mold spores in ductwork, but not only in ductwork, because if mold is making its way into the ventilation system, it could be from anywhere in the house. So with this test, one option is to send in a piece of an air filter from the furnace. You can also send in vacuum dust or do testing not unlike I mentioned with that ERMI test where you're collecting surface samples. This test not only looks at spores, but also mold toxins, which can be nice as it will look for the same toxins that are also being tested in the real-time urine mycotoxin testing that I discussed in the last podcast episode when I was talking about diagnosis of mold toxicity in the body. So a result here could also indicate the need to contact an inspector to help localize the problem. So why not start out with a mold inspector to begin with? And I would say it really depends on the mold inspectors that you have access to in your community. However, most will rely on air sampling, and there is a lot of debate about this. Some argue that air sampling is preferable, and others more in the medical community argue for surface testing. And if you are doing your own surface testing and then involving a mold inspector who does air sampling, you have both types of information. I have had personal experience with negative air sampling only to find that there was mold present, and I've had this be the case with a number of patients that I've worked with. So I would not recommend that someone rely on air sampling alone. Often people will tell me that they had their home tested when they moved in and there's no problem. I would say you can't have complete assurance based on that. 
my own preference would be if there was a commercially available way to access swabs to take samples. And so this could be where someone's going around swabbing particular surfaces or even if they suspect an area that has mold and then sends in those swabs. So this would not be so different from the Petri dishes. However, it would be more direct sampling of dust. This would be more specific than the ERMI testing that I mentioned where multiple dust samples are on one cloth and so the report is not telling you anything about various locations. So what if you know you have a mold source, then what? More often, you will be contacting a remediation company of your choosing. This is a company independent from your mold inspector, and your mold inspector will help advise what needs to be done. Usually, they will also do air samples before and after the remediation And if the levels are still high, then further remediation needs to be done. I do think when a remediation company is doing the testing and then telling you what remediation is recommended, this is a conflict of interest. So if possible, the inspector and the remediation company should be separate. That doesn't mean the inspector won't be knowledgeable about the remediation companies and may end up giving you a list of companies that you might consider. A good remediation involves containment so that you're not getting increased exposure when they are removing the source of mold. This can look like plastic from floor to ceiling, so plastic sheets around the source and where the work is ultimately going to be done. Zippers are usually in that plastic, allowing those working to get into the space. Air scrubbers, or if possible, ventilation to the outside is also part of that. Depending on the problem, this could involve removing drywall, wood beams, ceiling, and so forth. It's not unlike removing skin cancer, for example. They have to go past the source to an extent to assure that they're not leaving anything that could lead to further problems. Then those areas need to be replaced by someone else who, for example, can replace drywall. This process can be very expensive depending on the cause. Insurance may pay for some or even a lot of it. Don't assume they won't. It's important to ask. I was surprised how helpful insurance was in one of our situations. In that particular situation, we actually were out of the house during the remediation and were staying in an extended stay for a couple months. And the remediation not only involved addressing the source, but also there was remediation of of many of the contents of the home. So what about contents? Here's an abbreviated thought on this. I will share a link in the description if you want to read more detail. Know that if mold is growing, for example, into a piece of wood furniture, I certainly would recommend just getting rid of that piece of furniture. So what I'm going to share is more about surface dust that has mold with mold toxins in it. 
So most dishes and clothing can be washed at high temperatures. Most hard surfaces can be HEPAVAC'd and or cleaned using an antimicrobial that the remediation company can provide or even a homemade solution that will be in the link that I'll share. Cushioned furniture like mattresses, couches, soft furniture are more problematic. When you sit on those or lay on those, the negative air pressure pulls whatever is in the air, mold, spores, and toxins included. Remediation companies may say they can clean those, but the consensus in the medical community is that that is insufficient. And when I say medical community, I'm referring to the environmental medicine community. So you might ask, does everyone need to throw away all the mattresses and all the soft furniture? And I would say that it really depends on how much those items were exposed, how long was the exposure, how high was the exposure, how sensitive is the person. This is not one size fits all approach. You will hear people who get rid of everything and spend their lives in mold avoidance. This is very stressful and will itself impair healing. When I hear of such stories, I can't help but wonder what aspects of treatment are not getting addressed, and that if addressed, may allow them to heal from mold-related illness and have lifestyles that are less extreme. These would be things like addressing mast cell activation, methylation, pyrrole disorder, accessing the vagus nerve, and lowering EMF exposure, just to name a few, and I've talked about many of these in previous podcasts. I'd like to add three mistakes that people make, and I will certainly include myself in this, and I'll give some of my own examples. But the first is going through a mold remediation and then thinking that you're done with this saga. And this is where I think it's very easy to be in a state of denial about how impactful this can be on one's health. So this is not a matter of bad luck and unusual circumstances. This is something that is exceedingly common. If you're susceptible, which it seems at least 25% of people are, and if you're in an environment with mold, which is arguably 75% or more buildings, then it does require being mindful and recognizing this isn't about moving through a difficult situation and being done with it. It's really about accepting the need to be vigilant but not living in the extremes. In a previous episode, I talked about environmental tips for a happy home. And a large part of that was about how to avoid exposure to mold and water damage. I would recommend listening to that in conjunction with this episode. I do talk about looking for evidence of water damage on a regular basis. If you have a leak, address it immediately. I talk about keeping humidity low, and you want that to be around 50%. You can buy a hygrometer on Amazon for $8. I recommend attending to windows, making sure they're well sealed, but also avoiding keeping curtains closed for extended periods as there will be mold growth behind the curtains. I talk about moving water away from the house so that it's not settling near the foundation, 
avoiding dust accumulation that will hold mold spores and toxins, and the importance of caulking, especially around sinks and windows. A second mistake people make is thinking that new homes don't have these issues. And I can speak to this from two experiences, actually. We lived in a newer development here in Louisville a few years ago, and when we were doing the walkthrough just prior to closing on the house, I started to have symptoms in the basement and noticed that there was some slight mold growth on the temporary railing and then realized it was also on the temporary steps that they had put in. If you've watched a neighborhood go up, you will recognize that often the wood is outside in the elements getting rained on and that that same wood is going to be used in the house, not only for temporary stairs and a temporary railing. Then in a house in Florida, which was also new, there appeared to have been mold growth that was wiped off on a windowsill and then painted over, though you could still see the demarcation on the windowsill. So likely the window was left open, water settled from rain perhaps, mold grew, and the house was carpeted in the bedrooms. Mold spores would have easily blown into the house and settled in the carpet. Also, the house was vacant for three months, and despite the air, we were told, running, there would have been great opportunity, given high humidity in Florida, for there to be mold growth. Both of these houses had air sampling done prior to our moving in that did not show mold. So the third mistake people make is relying heavily on air samples. Our most recent home was tested during the inspection period, and this house was five years old, so kind of learned my lesson with new houses. This house was also tested with air sampling and found to be fine. However, when we moved into the house and just walking in for the first time when there was not furniture of the former owner, I noticed that there was what looked like a place water would have tracked from a seam in the tile out of the shower and down to a baseboard that looked like it was starting to rot, something I hadn't noticed when we originally looked at the house. So my assumption was that there would be some moisture behind that wall. And the way we were able to have that inspected was the inspector put a hole in the wall and actually drew an air sample directly out of that space. So again, there was not high levels in the house, but there was mold growth behind that wall. And there was a pocket door, so every time that pocket door would have opened and closed, it would have pulled out some of those mold spores. So that area and drywall had to be remediated, again, under containment. And then after being in the house for a few months, I noticed that I felt strange while working in the basement. This is a house with a fallaway lot, and my office is in the basement, essentially. So I sent an EMA test, and it did read high. The inspector who we know did find mold off a utility room. There was sort of a hidden space that the water heater drained into, and there was high humidity in that space, 
and mold growth that had tracked along the inside of drywall. Neither of these issues were identified through routine air samples. So as you can see, there is no perfection here. You need to rely on your symptoms, your intuition, the current tools at hand, and someone in your area who can help you with additional testing. You don't want to be naive, you don't want to be in denial, and you don't want to be living in fear. Become educated, be mindful of the need for maintenance and doing periodic checks, but don't make this your life. I do have a podcast, again, called Tips for a Happy Home, where you can learn more about prevention. Please consider sharing if you know someone who might benefit from this episode. If you'd like to be notified of upcoming episodes or want to read more about the root causes of brain-related symptoms, please consider subscribing at CourtneySnyderMD.com. And if you'd like to help me get such information out to those who might benefit, consider engaging with me on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. I look forward to connecting with you in a future episode. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.